This is episode 66 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Megan Nosel. She was with us back on episode 8 with the ABCs of HNC. Uh, she's an incredibly bright, brilliant woman. I'm so blessed to have her as a colleague. Um, anything you need to know about head and neck cancer, she's your girl. So uh, if, if that's your jam, go back and listen to episode 8. She's such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to that. Uh, but this is an interesting conversation that we decided to have totally off the cuff. Uh, Megan and I both have aspirations of doing a PhD one day, and we've just found a lot of, I don't like, I don't like to use negative words, obstacles <laughs> that we've had to overcome uh, to try to get there. So that's really what we're talking about today. If anybody's interested in getting a PhD, really a lot of things that we learned that you need to be aware of first and some things that you need to sort out before really going through and going forward with that process. So I really love this conversation with Megan. I always I always enjoy talking with her. Uh, just one quick announcement today. The MedBridge deal is back from now through the end of the year. So if you need a whole bunch of CEUs, uh, head to medbridgeeducation.com forward slash SYP. They have unlimited CEUs. They have a lot of brand new courses out that I just actually saw. I know Megan Sutton, our aphasia friend, has one out. Uh, Dr. Michelle Trochet, who we just heard two episodes ago, she has one out on motor speech. A lot of really good new courses are out this year. So with that MedBridge deal for $95 for one full calendar year, uh, you get access to their premium plan, which includes unlimited CEUs, also, their home exercise builder. This is really cool because you can just click through and decide, you know, which exercises are appropriate for your patient, print it out, gives them a really formal, professional-looking exercise sheet instead of the one that, you know, you spill spaghetti sauce on at lunch. But um, And also, they have a patient portal so the patient can go home and click in and see which exercises you prescribe to them and watch little animated videos about how to do the exercise. So it really helps with carryover at home. Uh, they also have a mobile app, which is very useful. I really like to do this when I'm on my long fees drives. I'll just throw on a you know a different lecture or two. So that's really handy. And they also have some really good patient handouts. So you get all of that for 95 bucks for one full calendar year from the day that you register. So use promo code SYP or go to medbridgeeducation.com forward slash SYP. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hi, Megan. Hello. How are you? I'm so happy to be back. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you back. All right. Tell the people who you are. I am Megan Nosol. I am a speech pathologist in Raleigh, North Carolina. I work in an outpatient setting, mostly treat TBI, CVAs, a little bit of head and neck cancer, and I'm interested in getting a PhD. All right. So what are we going to talk about today? <laughs> well, I thought we could start with, you know, between the two of us, I think we have a lot of stories about, you know, yeah. 
just yeah. the winding road of getting all the information and yes the questions yes. we have to ask, we have to ask ourselves and the hurdles so we could start yes. there all right yes so before I'll give everyone a little inside peek here before I clicked record me and Meg were just like ranting about how really difficult it can be to try to get a PhD and we'll, we'll keep it G-rated for this episode but <laughs> if, if I sound like a little fired up it's, there's no beeps yeah we were just getting so fired up I'm like we need to just start recording and actually talk about this on the episode but basically uh me, me and Meg you know found each other what was it maybe last year or a little bit before then because we both you know I I love everything that I do here and I just if it's not apparent have such a passion for education and dysphagia and it's always been my goal to at some point get a PhD but as Megan's going to talk with us today about it's not that easy there's so many hurdles and it really seems like it just has to be like the perfect storm, the perfect timing mm -hmm. of a million pieces falling into place at the right time for it to happen. And right. this episode is not meant to discourage anyone by any means. It's just to hopefully to inform you of if this is something that you want to pursue, there's just a lot of steps to take before you should just jump in. Right. Um, so I know like one of the main things we're going to talk about is, is funding because it's, you know, quite a multi-year commitment can be expensive. And I know a friend that just got accepted to start her PhD. And then she called me and she's like, okay, I'm going to start this program. Now, where do I look for funding? And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, you're starting a program and you don't even have funding. So, <laughs> so let's, I don't, that's probably not where you wanted to start Meg, but I mm -hmm. think let's, let's start with that. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean to have a funded PhD? A funded PhD typically means perhaps like a, an assistantship or a, like a fellowship of some sort where you're basically working for the graduate school or for the uh, researcher, the academic, 20 hours a week, maybe, while they pay for your schooling for maybe the first three years. I, I've found that's typical. And you know, if someone has, if a researcher has a lot of funding, then you might get more than that. But it, it's, you really go from year to year. It's dependent on everyone, you know, does those yearly um, requests for funding. Yeah. yeah. And you can't guarantee you get funded all three years or all four years. It's year by year. Yeah. Unfortunately. So yeah. it's pretty yeah. tough. Yeah. And I would say that the SLP profession as, a, as in general is not, you know, like physical therapy, they're not getting, you know, huge amounts of grant funding. And a wise man once told me, and you know him, yes. <laughs> that you should definitely try to get funding, yes. try not to go into a program without funding. Yes. I think, you know, and that's one thing that me and Meg were both talking about before we clicked record on this episode. We're both married with children and it's, it's not just you going into a PhD. It's you're, you're essentially changing the entire dynamic of your family because right. of the commitment that's involved. So you do have to make sure that your spouse, your kids, anything else is settled and on board. 
And if your spouse can't get a job in the area that you're looking to go or your kids may not assimilate, there's just a lot of moving parts there. So that's why really funding can be so important because if your spouse is having trouble finding work in that area, you're not making any money whatsoever other than peanuts, basically. Stipend, you know, what are, yeah, yeah, yeah. What so, are you going to live off of? So. Right, right. That is actually one of the biggest struggles for, for people looking who SLPs who want to get a PhD. I think it's really interesting to note that back in 2013, when these SLPs were being surveyed for Davidson et al.'s study, they listed the top three reasons as why SLPs did not pursue a PhD program as number one, the doctoral program length. Number two, the cost of the program or the lack of funding. And number three, family obligations. And if you are someone who likes school, the idea of going back for a PhD may not be as daunting to you. But if you are thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, I can't even imagine going back to school again. I can't, I don't like the idea of getting another degree on top of, of my master's. If you're wondering about how many years it would take you, you really have to just think about whether or not you're going to go the full-time route or the part-time route. And if you go to the program's website or if you meet with a, a potential mentor, you can get information about the curriculum requirements and you can really just say, okay, I'm, I want to try to get this degree completed in four years. And if you look at the degree requirements, you'll have a certain amount of credit hours so you can break it down that way per year, how many courses you need to take in order to complete your deadline, the cost and the funding. There's a lot of different ways to pay for the PhD, but hopefully your mentor will have the funding. If not, there are some really creative alternative routes. Asha has some ideas. Uh, I listed that in my resource link. And family obligations, that's just something that is out of our control. If you're not able to travel to the program of your choice, you need to find something close. You might want to broaden your scope a bit and maybe think about getting a doctoral degree in a different kind of program. Some of our really great researchers have PhDs in other fields, such as epidemiology. And so you're not just limited to getting a PhD in SLP. Yes. And I personally, and I know that you personally have encountered all three of those problems, yes. those hurdles. Yes. yes, yes. So it is quite reflective, I think, of the struggle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know, like, people have reached out to me like, I have funding, Teresa, come work with me. And I'm like, where are you? And it's like, Alaska. No, you know, it's not. Uh, Nobody in Alaska has called me, but I'm just saying it, it's like the other side of the world compared to, you know, where my family is living and settled. So I think that's so hard. Exactly. And on the flip side, my, you know, local university that I would love to do a PhD at doesn't, isn't accepting students. So that's, you know, it, it stinks that there's those dynamics that you have to look into ahead of time. Yeah. If you're, if you are single and you can move, if you can go anywhere, that is one thing you can cross off that list of yeah. top three reasons why people can't get a PhD. Yeah. That makes it a whole lot easier. Well, actually, that'll probably 
just, you'll just have such an easier time. (laughs) But I feel like people aren't ready sometimes to get their PhDs until years into their program, into their career. Well, that that was my issue. I was like gung-ho that I was going to just go right into my PhD right from grad school. And I had a few, I did a master's thesis and I had a few mentors that were just like, go work. You really need to go work. And I'm glad that I did. Cause what's uh-huh. so funny is I did my master's thesis in child language Oh wow! and I'm doing nothing related to child language now. So That's clearly, amazing. you know, clearly I did get out in the field and find my passion and I'm grateful that they didn't, you know, that I didn't do that right away. But right. on the flip side, now trying to go back and figure it out is tough. Yeah. Well, I had a totally different path really from how I, I never even thought about a PhD until maybe, I don't know, what was it like a year and a half ago? I was really considering going to medical school. Yes. That's when we started talking. I yeah. think cause that's what you were, that's what you were considering. And I was like, Meg, you need to get a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> I think that you might have even, it might be my fault for throwing you down this pigeonhole. I can blame you. Oh my gosh. that That's probably true. I really was like, I was actually going between PA and medical school. I had been, I had nearly finished all the prerequisites for medical school. And I put in like, that's, that was three years of my life where I was working part-time and doing pre-med courses. It's crazy. I don't regret it, but I mean, after doing all that and I was talking to doctors and I was thinking, I really, as a mom, I really want that work family balance. Yeah. And I just can't see that happening with medical school. Yeah. No way. Yeah. So even, I just, I don't really know much about med school at all. Is it even possible to like, I feel like so many people go to med school, like right from college. Is it even, do people go back like years later? There are some people who go back years later and they, and they typically do really well because they're like, you know, they figured life out. They figured life out, you know? <laughs> yeah. So that didn't really yeah. scare me so much as, you know, I would have to make medical school my entire life. And I just yeah. can't do that to my kids. Right. Right. And honestly, I don't know if that really works with my personality. I, I'm more of some, I'm, I really like to read and write. Yeah. And I'm more of like a analytical, I like to be in my own space. Yeah. As much as I love working with people as a clinician, I, I do get tired. I, I'm more of like the introvert extrovert. Yeah. I don't know about you. You seem like an extrovert. I, I'm actually super introvert. I'm no. like all the, yes. Yes. No. I'm like all the, yeah. Myers-Briggs, like all those personality tests. I'm super introvert. It's like, I love That's to do this stuff, but then I want to like go bury myself in bed for like two days and not talk to anyone. <laughs> yes. So, it's very tiring to talk to people. But like, this is different because like, I'm literally just talking to you, even though like tens of thousands of people are going to hear this. I don't know that. Right. You know? Right. I'm just sitting talking to a computer and yeah, that's it. I'm sitting by myself talking to a computer. Isn't that interesting? So, <laughs> Yeah. I just wonder if like, I wonder if there's any research out there about what personalities do better in yeah. PhDs, you know? Yeah, know. that would be interesting. But we'll have, to, we'll have to ask our friend. I'm sure he knows. Yes, I'm sure he does. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, now that we've totally convinced you not to get a PhD if you have a family. <laughs> no. <Nope. laughs> I'm still, I'm still pushing forward. Yeah, I am too. We're going to, we're going to look back on this episode in five years and say we figured it out. That's right. 
As you're thinking about whether or not the PhD is right for you, please think about what your long-term career goal is. Do you want to do independent research? Do you want to work in the university setting? Do you want to do advanced clinical work as a clinician? Do you want to work as part of a faculty in a medical facility? These are all things you should consider when you're trying to figure out which kind of doctoral program is right for me. All right. So what else, what other things do we have to conquer? Well, I just thought we could talk about, you know, how we decided to get a PhD. We kind of yeah. like set, we can segue into that because I mean, I, we went through the, the whole process and I think, I think there are some things that you really have to like in order to, to really commit to a PhD. Yeah. So, you know, you have to like to do research. And if you haven't done research before, you may not know if you like right. this or not. Right. You have to be okay with teaching. You have to like, kind of like teaching, but that's not the main reason to do it. They don't, you know, it's not, PhDs are not there to teach as much as they are there to do the research. Teaching is just kind of a way to make the money and pay the mm -hmm. bills. So, and of course to train other clinicians, but it's just kind of like a, it's not the main reason why people get PhDs typically. Yeah. And then writing skills, your, your writing skills have to be really strong. If you're not someone who is a great writer, maybe this is not the greatest thing for you. Presentation skills. I think, I think people can usually, it just takes a lot of practice if you're someone yeah, who's yeah. not a great yeah. presenter. I was going to say, I can think of some PhDs that are pretty cruddy presenters. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, no one's throwing paper wads at them. So. Right, right. Yeah. And then just like, how did you do in statistics and what research experience do you have? Because you're going to take a statistics course, probably at least one, maybe more. And you really have to be good at it because your research has to contain a lot of the stats to back up your data. Yeah. I think that's one thing that I really struggle with, like the concept of statistics I love. Like I love hearing about the different numbers for certain things. And then there's other things that I don't care about at all. Mm -hmm. And if someone was like, go figure that out, I'd be like, no, I don't care. But I know. so I think that's, that's so funny that there's like some stats I'm just crazy about. And there's other things that. Yeah. I took a stats course for my first master's degree and I, so I didn't have to take it for my second master's for my speech pathology master's, but I took it again for the pre-med and I actually found like a new appreciation for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that if someone, if, if someone could show me how to, to use relevant statistic methods, yeah, then I would really like it. Cause there's something, there's something like obsessive about it for me <laughs> like yeah oh you have yeah. a formula and you just plug in the formula and you right and it, it just feels good to get those numbers <laughs> right but I also think too like I just finished a research project with with a group of people and I think like plugging and knowing all those numbers because you're so antsy to like find the outcome of this research project yeah. was like exhilarating. Yeah. You know? Yes. So I think it's like, even if like you get stuck in the murky mud of statistic hell for a minute, yeah. but right. you realize the big picture of the super passionate project that you're working on. Yeah. 
that's kind of how I tried to look. I'm like, this is super confusing. But then I was like, but yes, we're going to figure this out. Yes, yes. So there's something kind of cool about it in a nerdy way. Yeah. (laughs) I like to say I love a good challenge, but yeah. yeah. Right, right. It will be challenging for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So how much research have you done since you're, I mean, like running a business and are you able to do some research? You're probably able to get data. Not as much as I would like. Yeah. I mean, I've been involved in two kind of major-ish projects since grad school, but that's about it. Like I always say I would like to do more because I just think like, especially with my fees business, I have so much data Right. That is just sitting in a little fees box. You've got a gold mine of data. I do. I know. So I'm like, what can we talk about? And I, you know, I've talked about a lot of different projects with a lot of people, but of course everyone's so limited on time. So Right. Right. Oh gosh. I can't even imagine what you could do with that data. I know. I know. Do you have like ideas running around in your head about oh, it? I, always, always. I'm like, I'm going to start this research project today. Who wants to do it with me? And yeah. Then, yeah. And then time gets the best of me. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well, I only did like a research study when I was in master's in the master's program, and I'm working on one now, finally. But the IRB processes, yes, you know, it's time consuming, and yes. I can't. I just I feel I feel so badly for people who who can't. Like I can reduce my hours. Fortunately, I'm I'm in that fortunate situation where I can reduce my hours so I can do some research. But if you're an SLP who works full time right. and you want to do research, it's not it's not ideal and it's not it's definitely not easy. Right. So I feel for people who are like, well, how can I do this? You know, it's it's daunting. Right. Totally. Super. Yeah. So. One resource I have loved lately, and I know, Teresa, you're on this as well, the clinical research for SLP group on Facebook. Yeah. There's a lot of really experienced and talented researchers on that forum, and they've been really generous with their insight and recommendations. And I just like following the the threads because it's like an inside view of what's going on in the academic researcher world. They They have this discussion going about, you know, how to get clinicians more involved in the research. And I, I'm hoping that there's going to be some ideas thrown out about how we can get clinicians more involved in the research. And I mean, if can you, do you hear about research studies going on in your area? No, not Me neither. Me neither. Like I wouldn't even know where to go if I wanted to find a list. Yeah, I don't think that really exists. Well, I don't know, does it? Well, and so, I mean, is it that, I mean, I live, I live near Duke, UNC, Wake Forest. I live near NC State, which has, I think, a bachelor's program. But you'd think that there would be some research studies going on, and I'm sure there are, but I don't know any, I don't know any of them. Yeah. I feel like, I don't know, maybe just in the last few years, I've seen postings for like, two different research projects. And I think they were both just looking for like a research assistant or something, but I don't feel like there's ever 
like PhDs looking for clinicians to partner with. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know why that is because I think these PhDs have these great ideas of what we need to study and they have incredible resources. And then the clinicians have all the data. I think it's like the perfect marriage, yeah. but for some reason it's not, you know, we have these PhDs that are just sitting in their, you know, offices trying to, you know, create these studies. We have these clinicians out here actually seeing all these patients and there's not much collaboration in between. So missed opportunities. Yes. That's the word. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I mean, I'm certain maybe there's going to be some academics listening to this thinking like, well, what the heck we have research studies, we're putting them out, we're getting SLPs, but I, I wish there was a place where we could go like a website where we could in our area, in our state, yeah. What are the research? What are the you know research studies going on? So that we could either get involved or we can get patients involved. Yeah, it's a new project for you to start, Meg. Well, yeah, a new website. Project yes, to my list. Yes, I know. <laughs> but anyways, I I just feel like how do we know that we like the research? If we just rely on, you know, like little, these, a thesis maybe that we did in, in our master's program or you got to do, you have to experience. Right. One. I mean, I guess I think too of like kind of the dropout rate of getting a PhD is kind of shocking. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's something I was talking to my friend the other day about that too. And I'm like, I feel like if people got to do more research and experience it before they step into a PhD program and realized it wasn't for them, it would save everybody a lot of heartache, I think. Right. It's almost like we need some shadowing and observing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just got to like dip your toe in the research water, I think, before you yeah. go full on sign I talked to so many PhDs. I, I mean, from all over. And you and you helped me with that. I really, yeah. I mean, gave me a great resource and I have stuck to his advice. Yeah. And just, just meeting as many PhDs as possible. Yeah really helped yeah so if you can't get in on the research I guess the second best thing to do would be to go and meet PhDs and just try to get a feel for what they do yeah and ask them to be candid with you and ask them to really tell you how it is yeah because if you read that article um, about perspectives of pursuing a PhD in communication sciences disorders it says that more than 50% of the PhD job careers, more, more than 50% of the job as a PhD is doing research. So I guess what else do we think they're sitting there doing? Gosh, beats me. I, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't think they're all sitting around eating bonbons. Teaching? But yeah. Yeah. Grading. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Presenting. But really, it's it's you got to like the research. Yeah. And how do we know if you like the research? Right. It's <laughs> a great point, Meg. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Did you have a system for identifying a program or eliminating them? Nope. I mean, just because you stuck to your local area, right? Yeah. I mean, and that and that's like what I you know obviously limits me is that. Like my husband has business here too. Right. My son's extremely settled here. So, I mean, I really like my life here too. I don't want to uproot it and move. 
So, you know, I mean, there is quite a few universities within driving distance that I would be, that I would consider the top two that are really well-respected programs in the country, both said that they weren't taking PhD students. So that was just like, what the heck? Mm -hmm. So I actually was able to find another program, but it was an interdisciplinary program. So it was still, it wouldn't even be a PhD in speech pathology. It was a, spe- it was a PhD in another field, which it actually sounded really appealing to me because I liked, I, you know, I'm, everyone knows I'm really all about interprofessional education and collaborating with colleagues and right. advocating to the other profession. So I really thought that was a good fit for me and it's still maybe some time down the road but it still is like an hour and a half from my house so right. you know commuting an hour and a half every day or however many days a week I gotta for go it's not gonna be fun yeah. yeah 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 well even you know I started out thinking yeah I could go to Toronto or but then life happens and and I had to stick to my area and I I was told you know find research that interests you look at the faculty in each program actually read the articles the publications they put out find things that interest you and that really narrowed it down (laughs) for me yeah yeah yeah. so uh, not that there aren't great well-respected researchers in my area but just I have such a a narrow interest uh, yeah. area. So that really, yeah. that was, I almost, I feel like I wish that there was like some sort of way to say, okay, Megan, you are super interested in this area. And here is Dr. So-and-so that's super interested in this area that lives in your area. So you guys should work together. Oh, but Dr. So-and-so doesn't have funding. There should be a way to like, go to ASHA or go to the funding gods, whoever it is, and say, okay, like now I have a doctoral student, we have this research study that we'd like to carry out. You know, it seems like all these people get funding first, and then they're looking for doctoral students instead of conversely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then there's some really great researchers who have the funding, but they don't actually, they can't take students. Right. Like... Just bananas. Yeah. Like Kate Hutchison, you know? Right. She, she's a, she has a PhD in epidemiology and she works for MD Anderson, University of Texas at Houston, but there's no program for me there. Yeah. So that's frustrating. So we have a great researcher and she has tons of funding. Yeah. So frustrating. Something's got to give here, people. I know. So I know, I know, I know. Maybe someone will take pity on us when they're hearing us. I know, I know. This wasn't supposed to be like Teresa and Megan begging for a PhD, but that's what it's turning into. That's what it's starting to turn into. Like, I know. Let's give them some I know. good information. Desperation doesn't usually sell, but tonight no. it might. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> All right. So, how about the application process? Because, oh, God. All right. To this me, is where I'm going to get fired up again. Yeah. Well, Gosh, I don't know about you, but like, I didn't know that there was like a, a way to reach out to the fact the 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 program once you, you found someone that you're interested in, like, yeah. there's like a whole process behind that, that if you don't read the, the fine print, right, you can really, <laughs> they can look down on you for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not fun. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it changes. 
you know, it's dependent on the the program. Some yeah. people were like, are will tell you on the website, go ahead and reach out. Others will tell you no, reach out to the director first. Right. Or some will say like you have to complete the entire application before you can contact someone. Yes. So it's, it's like, really hell no. Yeah. So it's really important like to not get really excited and reach out to someone to actually read the program requirements. Yeah. So that you're following the process correctly. Yeah. Because people can get a little frustrated about that. I I felt. I don't know if you yeah. if you I don't know if you did that as a first timer. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I've never really been a good listener. I, I'm not a good follow the leader. So I just, I just, I'm not going to spend, like, I remember one school I looked at, it was like, don't even email first, like, unless you've submitted your application. And I was like, oh, hell no. Like, I'm not completing this like 90 page application process, right? donating all my application fee money to them to find out that they don't even have what I'm looking for. Yes, I think that's really And so I'm super glad that I didn't anyways, because they didn't have what I was looking for. And it's like, I could have wasted so much time. So yeah, I'm sorry if you people have that on your website and I've just encouraged everyone to go around it. But well, it just seems silly because I feel like all the advice that we've gotten from mentors have said, reach out, you know, reach out, yep. see what people have to say, see if they have funding or if they're, you know, I, I really do appreciate some people that I've reached out to have said, you know, maybe in a year or two, I should have funding. So please check right. back like next year. Right. So I think that's, what's important too, is I think when I was looking to do it, I was so like gung ho on starting it right that semester. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I obviously got let down because there was no place that I could start right that semester, you know? So I think what I want people to take home about this episode is to start doing your research now. Yes. Because maybe if you want to start a PhD in two to three years, maybe by the time you want to start that mentor that you want to work with will have secured funding by then. That's right. So, and it, and just accept the fact that you really probably aren't going to make a decision easily, you know, by the end of the, this year, <laughs> yeah, yeah. if you've just started your search, yeah. you know, it, I mean, I've literally been searching for a year and a half Yeah, and it's quite difficult, especially if you have limitations and just location and funding and things like that, but yeah. just finding the right match and like, you have to keep track of it's kind of like starting, it's starting all over again in terms of, okay, what, when are the deadlines? What are the, what, what documentation do I mean? I had to get all my transcripts together. I had to dig GRE. I had to do all that stuff takes time. Yeah. So for people who took, who went to grad school years and years ago, you got to remember yes. <laughs> this, this stuff takes time to compile. Yes. So it's not something that you can just jump into. You really have to, you have to do your research. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to do research, yes. you got to do your research. Right. There you go. There you go. Right. <laughs> so, and I think the other thing that one of the mentors told me was when you're reaching out to make it concise, do not go on and on about who you are and what you do and send it a resume. Someone told me to make it concise because these, these people are busy. 
these people have a lot of people reaching out to them. I don't know. That that is like my desperate plea for anyone that emails me. Yes, make it concise. I I am like so just bogged down and like my email is such a black hole and I just I read these emails that are just like pages and pages and pages long and I'm still like what's your question? Mm-hmm. Like I I feel bad because I feel like I get, you know, like I'll respond like, so what exactly do you need help with? Like, what do you need to know? Yeah. Clear and concise. And that means like three or four sentences, literally. Yeah. Yes. So, and that's my name is Teresa Richard. Yeah. I want to get a PhD. Can you help? Yeah. 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 Pretty much. (laughs) Yeah. But before I knew that I was, you know, attaching my resume. I, oh, Megan. I mean, I didn't know. No, I know. You You know how? Yeah. So I'm just telling people, I'm going to, I'll tell people, honestly, like I made a lot of mistakes. That's why, that's why I really wanted to do this with you that yeah, maybe we yeah. can help people not feel like an idiot right. <laughs> in right. this process. Right. Nobody's written the book yet about how to get a PhD that's in right. pathology. That's right. So. That's right. So. Okay. Where else? Sorry. We got on like a total tangent with the application process. Was that, did you have any other points to cover there? Well, you're going to have to have three references. And I don't know about you, but being out of school for five or six years and not really, I haven't really kept in touch with my professors. I can't really ask them to write me a reference because what I've been told by PhDs is that they really value references from PhDs. Yes. Not supervisors in the clinic, not colleagues not former employers they want to know if you're academically and academically inclined and prepared to do the research prepared to commit to this if you are motivated to follow through so they want phds to kind of chime in on it and so prepare to have three letters from phds so that's an, that's another incentive to really start getting to know your local PhDs and start trying to figure out, hey, can I help you in any way with your research? Can I get my patients, you know, into your studies? Because I don't know how else you do that if you're years out of your grad school. Yeah. Right. I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't really keep in touch with my, my professors. No, I mean, the people that were going to write letters for me are just all people that I've befriended throughout the years. Not, not, they were no one that I knew like grad school wise. Right. And you're lucky. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Start making friends. Start like, making friends. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, even, even the friends that I have who are PhDs, they, I mean, they could attest to my I guess my motivation and my research abilities, I don't know, like they don't know anything about my academics. I mean, I guess they can kind of assume that, I mean, I have two master's degrees and I I like to learn. Right, right, right. But I was going to say that's what like the GREs are for, but I don't buy that for one minute. I don't buy that either. Yeah. I really don't. Yeah. So that's kind of another hurdle. I think for a lot of people, like finding it's a major three, hurdle. Yes. yes, finding three references from PhDs who know you who can give you really good references. That's a hurdle. So 
I mean, GR, set the GRE aside. That's just another hurdle. And there's lots of hurdles. Yes. That's why this is not like an easy, quick process. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. The GRE thing, GRE thing stressed me out to no end. So. Oh, God, I wish they would just eliminate that factor. I agree. I agree. And I really, I, I mean, I know some PhDs who said, who, who admitted to me that they just did horribly on the GRE. Yeah. And they were admitted. Right. So that's why it just doesn't make sense. It's like if they just want to score, what sense does it make? I feel like it's just if you a, make yourself like sound like a complete idiot, but then they still want you. What it right. just wastes everybody's time and money. Right. And so I think I'm not telling everyone to go out and just, you know, wing it, but I am telling people maybe to like kind of remove that as a hurdle because I feel like what PhDs have told me is yes, it's something you need to do, but it's not everything. Yes. So it's pretty much exactly what I was told. Yes. Yeah. So maybe not let that prevent you from. Right. Just suck it up and take it. And I know, I know. <laughs> I, I like, I despise the word limitation because I feel like those are like restrictions that you put on yourself. Right. But like, I have this serious mental block with the GREs. So do I. So I have to, I threw <laughs> up before I took my last GRE. Yeah. Like I had yeah. to run out of the testing room and throw up. Yeah. That is some serious. It is. Stress on your body. Yeah. For what? It's a GRE mental basket case. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm not doing that again. I mean, I'm wiser and older. I'm not going to do that. Again. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go in there and just say, you know what? Yeah. It is. What I it think is. I'm wiser, but according to the GRE, I'm not. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. If they could gladly take my master's score. I'd be in a, in a PhD program now, but they won't. So, well, let's say you are really interested in getting into a really competitive program. Yeah. And you had to take the GRE. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I, I mean, I at least have a book and. Well, I paid like 300 bucks. I signed up for one of those GRE prep courses. Oh my gosh. But I just didn't have the time to go through it. Oh my gosh. Like when do I have time to spend like an hour at night? You know, I mean, with all my businesses, my son, like I just don't, there's not an hour in my day. Wow. Unless if I just don't want to sleep for a few months, which I love my sleep. So that's not happening either. So I know. So what I, has I just to happen to, though? I mean, what has to yeah. happen? I just, I just said the time just wasn't right. Cause I just have a lot on my plate right now. If I get some things off my plate, then I'll be able to take that course. Mm -hmm. But I think that's, what's so hard about the GREs now is like that they've changed it since when I got my master's and it's, you have to like know how to take the test. Yeah. I so hate you that. can't just, I know as a former teacher, well, not, I, I despise I know, I taking know. a test just to take the test. <laughs> well, and that's what I was like telling the one, the chair of the department of the one school that I was like really seriously considering was she's like, you can just take it. You don't have to know how to take the test. I'm like, no, no, they changed it. Right. Like when I took it, when I got my master's, you could just go in and wing it. But now when I tried to take it, you have to know how to answer the questions. Like they'll just give you like two words and it's like, you're supposed to just know because they 
honestly, you know, set in the, yeah. Honestly, I would love, I, I'm not a conspiracy person, but I feel like there's a bit of a conspiracy behind the GRE. Yeah, yeah Let's totally. Let's make every college and university think that people need to take the GRE. It has nothing to do with anything that someone wants to study, but I would love to see the actual research on this. Yeah. <laughs> How does yeah, this? I agree. I mean, I can understand the MCATs. I think you need a foundational knowledge before you enter medical school, yes. but it's all yeah. on science. It's everything you're going to be studying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is logical. That's that logical to me. Yeah. Everyone's on an even playing field. Everyone needs to come in with a certain amount of knowledge. Right. I'm trying to do research in dysphagia, not the correlation of antonyms. I know. That's just, that really, so. I mean, <laughs> as PhD, as for PhD programs, they should kind of like, they should think about that a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm telling yeah. you guys to think about that a little bit more. Does that, I know sense? so many of our PhD <laughs> friends are probably just like, Oh my God, people have no clue. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know you have to have some kind of standard. Yeah. But I think that's what's so, I don't know, because I'm torn with, if you're someone that's worked in the field for a while and you know that this is something you want to pursue, like your clinical skills, your clinical reputation, your letters of recommendation should all speak towards that. And and that is why I think we should not put so much pressure on ourselves about the GRE. Yeah. Like if you can't get a good letter of recommendation or it's obvious that you've just been job hopping for the last 10 years, you know, I don't know. I mean, right. even people that job hop for 10 years, sure. they still just want to be doing research. But sure. I think there's a lot of other ways to measure someone's strengths than just a test that's pure nonsense and has nothing to do with our field. Yeah. But yeah. Anyways, I, I don't want this to be a whole complaining episode. No, but. I mean, I just want people to know that it's just get over it and just it's stupid and you got to do it. Just do it. And don't let it be yeah. like something that prevents you from, from getting it. Yeah. It should not be that because from everyone that I've talked to it, no one says we just won't accept you if it's, if it's, yeah. if it's really low. No, it just really hurts my pride. It does. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, we're old. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> land of overachievers. So. Land of overachievers. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've got a lot. Yeah. Well, I think let's talk a little bit more about why is it so, because I know this is something you were saying, because you're super, I don't know, my, my, what I want to study is more general, more broad. But anyways, I what, what I want to know is, is like more broad research of dysphagia, whereas you're super niche down with, you know, specifically head and neck cancer mm -hmm. and things like that. So talk to the importance of, you know, we talked about how to reach out to a researcher, but why is that so important? Like, why can't you just get a PhD with, you know, my old child language professor? Mm -hmm. Well, this is, but this is the problem that I'm facing right now because I have, some I have fan, some fantastic opportunities that are not in my location that are in, that are designed for my interest in head and neck cancer and are like everything that would meet my dreams, you know, in terms yeah. of doing all kinds of research in head and neck cancer. But there's not anyone close to me doing that. So for me, it is about. I want to find the strongest mentor as possible. 
someone who can teach me how to do really good research. Someone who can tell, you know, someone who has a strong background in research as well as publications and presentations and also mentoring. So I have met a few PhDs who said, who told me, yeah, I could work with you, but I've never mentored anyone before. That was one of the issues. One of the schools that I reached out to, they said, we have someone that we think would be a great fit for you. Mm -hmm. However, they've never had a PhD student before. So they don't have experience. So it wouldn't be a good idea. It's like, well, somebody has to start somewhere. Like everybody's had their first PhD student. I, I, you know, and I just knew that like the other faculty there was extremely experienced, like 30 Mm -hmm. plus years. So I'm just thinking like, this doesn't add up, you know, that's why I think why you essentially have a team of mentors. Yes. So that's the other thing to consider that just because someone doesn't have the mentoring experience, it doesn't mean that they wouldn't be a good mentor and vice versa. Someone who's a lot of experience in mentoring doesn't mean they're going to be a great mentor for you. Right. So I think it's really important to get a feel for how someone, like how someone mentors, you know, what, what do they do? What do they do for their students and how do they get them involved? And, you know, do they, do they introduce them to, you know, other researchers and kind of help them grow and nurture them? Or are they a little more, do they give more independence and uh, are they a little more to themselves? So it's really dependent on what I think the person wants who's seeking the PhD. Yeah. I want someone who like really nurtures me because I'm, I'm a nurturing mentor as well. So I like to like really give my, my students a lot of support and I want to, you know, meet their, their needs and, you know, as much as I can and introduce them to new things and new people. But that's my kind of mentoring style. Right. Well, and I think, and it has to be a good fit too, a good personality fit. Cause I just think of, the amount of time you're going to spend with this person. Yes. And I know that I did speak to some people and I'm like, Oh my God, I could not imagine myself working with that person for four or five years. Mm -hmm. And then there's other people that may not be specifically in the same research area. And I'm like, Oh, I wish I could work with that person so bad, you know? So that's something to consider as well. Yeah. And I guess I think I've had to, because of my location requirements, think about, okay, what else am I interested in? There are, I do have other interests. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It may surprise people, (laughs) but I have other interests. (laughs) I I love neuro rehab. I absolutely would love to look more into that. I love working with TBIs and I like multidisciplinary collaboration. I like working with vocational rehab therapists. I, yeah. Oh, that's cool. So, I mean, I'm not someone who says like, well, if you don't work, if you are not doing work in head and neck cancer, I just can't work with you. My, I guess my requirement is I want, I want a really good mentor. I want someone who, who's, who really knows their stuff. Yeah. Who can pass that on to me because ultimately I, I want to be prepared when I get out of yeah. my program and not someone who's like, oh, I, I haven't had a whole lot of experience and in publications or presentations or yeah research studies I know I think if someone told me they're like just go and take whatever program you can get and just get your PhD and then once you're done 
then you can research what you want. And a part of me was like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And then it was like, I met with a few people that I was like, there is no way I could work super close with you for the next four or five years. Right. So I, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that's just what, it didn't scare me, but you know, now, now we know hindsight's 2020, right? Yeah. I mean, now we're going in eyes wide open, like, yeah. oh crap, I legitimately have to spend a very large amount of time with this person. We, we better like them. Yeah. Yeah, and I was talking to a, a, another SLP today who just is starting a PhD program, and he told me, you know, it's it's really about making making the PhD program. You you have an opportunity to make it what you want it to be. You know, so even if you don't have your top, you know, program, if you're not in that top program, or you're not working with your top. Uh, desired mentor you can make you can still make a good experience from it if you yeah if you can think of other things like well I'm working with someone who knows their stuff or I'm working with in a program that has a lot of other interesting perspectives from other academics or you know there are things I, I I've learned to like okay I need to keep more of an open mind and especially since I'm restricted to this area at the moment I really need to try to look at the big picture instead of just having my eyes on just one kind of thing. Yeah. So, well, I think that's such a good point too, because it is, you do have like a mentor committee basically. That's right. So you will have someone that specializes in this area, someone specializes in a different area and someone that is in the area that you're super passionate about. So Mm -hmm. yeah, like you said, I think that's kind of what helps to balance out those committees too. Yeah. So I think if you can think of your top priorities, if like by the time you finish your PhD program, what kinds of skills do you want? And, And I think then if it's, you really want to be really good in this kind of area, whether it's dysphagia or it's TBI or it's head and neck cancer. Well, then is it your top priority? Because then you're going to, you might have to go elsewhere and you have to be okay with that. Yeah. If it's, you know, I just really want to get a good researcher. I really want to have that kind of experience. Then you might be able to actually open up the options uh, if you can keep an open mind and you can say, well, I'm interested in these three areas because they always want right. to know your interests. You can't, you right. can't really lie about that. I mean, you know, everything on my resume says head neck cancer. <laughs> yeah. There's no denying. Meg. Yeah. So, but I do work in an outpatient clinic that specializes in TBI and CVA. So I, you know, I can say that I, I really have a lot of experience in neuro rehab and I really do like it. Yeah. And I wouldn't be sad about getting, you know, working in that area in my PhD, but I think I'd probably always try to have my foot in head neck cancer. So I'll try yeah. to collaborate with other people. I'll just keep doing it. It doesn't mean like, well, I just can't specialize in that. Right. So it's taken me some time to think about that though. Yes. Yeah. And be okay with it. <laughs> yes. I think there's a lot of things we've mulled over oh, and yeah. have had to be okay with for the time being. Yeah. Because I'm a mom and I'm a wife and... Yeah. Yeah. I can't, like you said, I can't just move everything. Right. And I don't, I don't really want to. No, I don't like really I settled I love, here. I love being in Raleigh. Yeah. 
yeah, we settled here for a reason and exactly. I don't really want to leave. So there's exactly. that. So exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so well, and that I, I don't know. I say that, but then it's uh, it, ask me in a month when there's 27 feet of snow on the ground and I'll tell you I'm sure I know. getting out yeah. of here. Yeah. yeah. That's why I got out of the north. So, yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about, so Megan obviously put together this wonderful outline of just things for you guys to consider that I'll throw up in the show notes, but there's some good resources on here too. Do you yeah. want to talk a little bit about the resources that you put on here? Yeah. So when I was first looking at, when I was first considering the PhD route, I was looking at, I was trying to find all kinds of resources on it. And there's tons of resources for people considering PhDs, but in other professions. So it's not... I've learned like looking at those and then comparing to what ASHA has, you can't really compare it. There's different requirements and things like that. So you really have to kind of stick to what ASHA, ASHA has like a fact page and it's pretty comprehensive. It talks about all kinds of different aspects of getting your PhD and what's life like with your PhD and funding problems and pretty much any question you have, it will be on that fact. So I thought that was a really good, good one. Uh, and there's also a PowerPoint presentation about um, thinking about a PhD. So at one point, someone in ASHA, and I think this happens probably every year at ASHA, because I think from what I read on that clinical forum, someone was yeah. giving a talk about. I know someone said that they're like, have you attended the ASHA, you know, talk at the convention? I'm like, yeah, I went for like three years in a row and I still didn't learn the information <laughs> I needed to learn that me and Megan have figured out over the last year. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> so sorry. Whoever is planning that talk this year. I. Well, you got to know your audience. Uh, yeah, that's the truth. Something that they were talking about. That's that the forum. truth. If you're you like your single and willing to uproot your whole life and exactly. move to Alaska, then go for yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. But I, <laughs> what worries me is that, you know, t- 2013, there was this this article about different perspectives from faculty and students, people or you know, SLPs who are interested in getting PhDs, like what the problems are, what are the barriers? And it looks like it really falls on ASHA and university programs to change these barriers or to address them at least. Yeah. And I can say that some of the, the, the programs that I researched are really thoughtful about how they address some of the barriers. Like some of them have part-time, part-time programs and full-time programs, which is nice. If you can't leave your job, but you still want to start the process, that's, that's yeah. pretty nice. Yeah, yeah. It's going to take yes. you longer and you can't get funding for people who want to go part-time, but that's another option at least. Right. You know, especially if you have family obligations or you're a single parent, you know, I mean. Right. That's a good idea. I forgot about that, Megan. Well, something to consider. Definitely. And so, you know, this was in 2013, this article came out. Do you know why you can't get funding for part-time? I think there's some kind of like university requirement that you have to take so many hours to get funding, like graduate assistantships or teaching fellowships. Gotcha. So they usually leave those for full-time, full-timers. Gotcha. But, oh, well, the whole, it falls on ASHA to address these problems, these burdens, these barriers. And I think there needs to be more of a discussion about how we do this. <laughs> Clearly, 
Every year, ASHA publishes a report on how many research doctoral degrees were granted, how many degrees in audiology and speech and hearing sciences were granted, how many clinical doctoral degrees were granted, and so on. And I thought it was very surprising that we haven't really made huge jumps in our numbers, especially in the past 10 years. In 2006, 72 research doctoral degrees were granted, whereas last year, 77 research doctoral degrees were granted which I thought was pretty amazing. They also report on how many faculty positions open and how many are filled, and roughly 50% were filled last year. So there's a huge need for PhDs in our field. I agree, because, you know, it's like you just keep hearing there's such a shortage, there's such a shortage, and it's like, but there's actually a lot of people that would love to get their PhD, but there's just so many dang hurdles, like you said. Yeah. So I'm not sure where the give and take is that, you know, I, I, I don't know, you know, it's like you don't want to dilute the PhD, but there's got to be some more creative ways to allow people that want to do it to be able to do it. Yeah. And I mean, in this article, they said it actually creates a downward spiral, spiral of success in our profession and getting out evidence-based practices and helping I, I believe it. clinicians. Yeah. It's, yeah. Really ha- it's going to have a negative impact on our profession, if, especially yeah. because there's a lot of people who are nearing retirement age. So in, during the time that this article was written, something like, something like 50% nearly were 50 years old. Let me get the exact number though. So that means 50% under 50? The mean age okay. was 50. So five years ago, we've got, we've got a, lot, a large number of people who are nearing retirement. Yeah. I don't know. I guess that doesn't, that, that kind of does make sense though, because I don't know what's like, is there such a way to find out the average age of when people start their PhD? Yeah, that would be interesting. Cause I feel like, I think that's like between that, like 30 to 35 range is like where people it's like, I don't know, that's just my circle of friends that I know that are going back. But then I think, okay, so then how long are you going to work? Right. You know, 30, 40 years till you're like 60 or 70. So that's right. On the other side of 52, you know. Well, in this article, I, don't know. I mean, I plan to just retire at 40 and live on the beach in Bora Bora, but personally. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah. That would be nice, Teresa. Right. <laughs> well, it does say in the article, the majority of faculty fell between 38 and 62. Okay. Yeah, I'm, so that would go right I'm in line 36. with 36. When... Yeah. You look, you look yeah. younger than me. <laughs> I am, yeah. <laughs> so I'm older than you. Yes, that, that's okay. All right. Well, so we've got a lot of people who are, who are approaching retirement age. Yeah. How are we going to, I mean, if people don't start. I know they should decide that these PhDs that are going to retire need to go pluck a new student and make them start working on their PhD before they can retire. It's a conundrum, I would say. I know. I'm sure that, that any researchers t- listening to this will think, well, but we can't just get funding at the drop of a dime. Right, right, right. And so, I totally get and respect that too, yeah. but it's like, well, then what, what's going to go on here? Right. I mean, are, is our profession going to, you know, die out? Well, and I, it, that whole like funding piece really, I mean, that's something that super interests me as well, because I feel like a lot of the PhDs that I do talk to that have very active labs are constantly getting more funding. 
So I, I don't know. Are there other PhDs that just aren't applying for it or they're not? I wonder if it's an investment process, you know, like the researcher has to invest in getting more people in the lab so that they can get more people writing grants and proposals. Right. And right. at some point there's going to be a, right. a hit. But then so, it's like, well, why haven't you written a grant in six years? You know? Right. So I think that's, what's interesting to me is the people that want the funding that are constantly having extremely active labs and pumping out paper after paper and presentation after presentation, they never seem to have a lack of funding. And then right. there's these other people that aren't really being that active and saying, well, I don't have any funding. Right. Right. It's a conundrum. So, yeah. So I hope, I, I, I wish that there, we, we could have some kind of like think tank about it, honestly, yeah. you know, get a bunch of people who are academics, get a bunch of people who are SLPs and start thinking about stop. Let's just stop complaining and let's yeah. figure it out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I agree. Good old fashioned problem solving. <laughs> I know. I know. I really hope this episode didn't turn into like a complain dump. It wasn't in, intended to at all but no, just but it's so many things that me and you have stumbled upon like crap no one told me that or like yeah frick that doesn't work that's right well i mean so. and it's realistic unfortunately it's gonna it's yeah. going to stress you out it's going to frustrate you you're gonna have hurdles might as well hear it here first right <laughs> but right. we're here first but you and i still have we're still pursuing it it's not stopping we us. are no so it, we're not saying don't do it Right. You, you just have to have a lot of determination. Right. So it's definitely not, I mean, even though we have done some complaining and some yes. woe is me. Yes. We pulled up our big girl panties. And it's okay. Onward we're moving. Yeah. Here. Yeah. But yeah. honestly, I, I just, I would like to have a discussion uh, somehow, uh, some way. I don't know. I don't know how to, how, come on. How could we do that? I know. Well, I think I don't think Asha needs to keep doing that stupid talk at the convention every year about how to get a PhD because I that the, a none of this information was on there. Yeah. So how about turning that talk into a think tank? Maybe we should put a post on the clinical research forum. Yeah, we could. And say we just had this discussion. Yes. Can we start problem solving this? Because yes. this is really yes. an issue and it's going to affect everyone at yes. some point. Yes. And poor Meredith, who runs that group too, has heard all my gripes also. So well, she feels my pain. But there's something like, you know, a thousand people or I don't know. I don't know how many people are in that group, but a, a, a good amount of people. Maybe if we put all, all of our heads together. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. What else can we do? I know. I mean, We're it's kind of a, it's, it's a, it's a, if you put the post, there could be a good, a lot of good ideas. There could be a lot of bitching. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. I don't know. That's why I really like that group because they don't allow bitching. Okay. So, yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, do so. you want to do it or do you want me to do it? <laughs> you can do it. Okay. I'll let you do it. I'll cite this article because this is what, okay. I, this is what fires me up. <laughs> I love it. No, that's great. I mean, that's. How change is made, Megan. Somebody's got to lead the charge. All right. Well, so you know, there's the thinking about a PhD presentation, which may or may not help people. But then there's yeah. that article about that I've been referencing this entire time, the surveys on perspectives of pursuing a PhD in communication to sciences and disorders. It's a good yes. one. Um, it's not going to give you like any epiphanies about the process, but it is going to kind of set you up for, well, what are some of the barriers? Yeah. Prepare yeah. you a little bit. 
Yeah. And then if you're looking to find a program in your area or in a certain certain area, you can actually go to ASHA EdFind and you can, you know, look to see who's in your, what programs are available in your area, what PhD programs. So that's yeah. kind of nice. You don't have to go and search, but hopefully by the time you, hopefully you don't need that because I think if you start, you know, identifying, well, can you go anywhere versus now I've got to stay in the location and then narrowing down who you can contact and based on right. what you like about them, right. you kind of don't have to use that resource. Right. So that's, that's right. another use, useless link from Asha. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's there. So it is. All right. Well, any final thoughts here, Meg? Oh, God. As you said, I hope that in five years we can come back and say, Look at this. You guys figured it out. We did it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we were complaining the whole way, but we did it. <laughs> right. Right. And I, I think the best thing you can do is just keep reaching out and keep trying to find the program that works for you. Don't, don't say like, I have to get started by this time. Right. Really try to get all your ducks in a row and, you're going to be doing this for a couple of years. You're going to be saying goodbye to a salary. Likely you're going to probably have add a little bit more to your plate at home. So you have to really be diligent about which program you choose. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Megan. Thanks, Teresa. It's always lovely to chat. Yes. Share your latest endeavor also. Oh, well, for people who like the research yes, in other areas, like anything in med SLP, I've started a podcast called the SLP minded podcast. Yes. I love it. People all the time are like, are you ever going to talk about other topics? I'm like, I'm really just far down this rabbit hole. So I really hope somebody else does. (laughs) I mean, that's you. Yeah. 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 I like all kinds of topics. So and I also yeah. really like talking to researchers. So I just thought yeah. it would be kind of, a, it's, it's mostly for me. <laughs> but why, why do you think I, I might as well this? share yeah. it? <laughs> I know, I know. In I case know. anyone else is interested, because I actually, there's a, there's a lot of things that you can't get from just reading the research, honestly. Absolutely. You have Absolutely. to talk to the researcher about, about why he or she did it this way or what are the chem- clinical implications? It's not always straightforward in the writing. Absolutely. So that's what I've really figured out from doing this podcast. Yes, I love it. So hopefully other people appreciate it. If not, that's cool. <laughs> they will. They will. I like All right, it. So where where can you find the SLP Minded podcast? It's on CastBox. It's on soundcloud and it's on podbean i'm still waiting for the itunes submission holy grail to open yes does that like take two weeks or i think it took long i think it might have taken me like four weeks oh my gosh why are they so slow yeah but then everyone tells me i hate itunes so it's like well it's hard to appease everyone. It's, there's right. so many You sources. cannot appease everyone, Megan. Oh Let me gosh. just tell you that right now. And I'm trying, but <laughs> I almost feel like I should just put a, I, should, I might just put a download on the website. Like yeah. just download yeah. the, the MP3 because yeah. it's just impossible to, to be on all of these 
sources. It, it is. It is. It's exhausting. Yeah. So. so I have a website. If you go to www.slpminded.com, you can go and look at all the episodes upcoming. You could email me any episodes, any research articles in the past two years that interest you. And I'll reach out to the researcher and try to get a discussion going. Awesome. I love it. Well, thanks so much for doing that, Meg. Thanks, Teresa. You inspired right. me. You're the, oh. you're the trailblazer. Oh, stop it. You are. I mean, I'm just the, I don't, what do I do? I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, don't like to sit had still. You a really so. good idea when no one else yeah. did. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah. So that is cool. Well, thank you. So you're, you're my inspiration. Oh, thank you so much. So we'll see what, what comes of it, but it's a fun project. We will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right. Well, thanks so much, Meg. All right. Thanks, Teresa. Talk to you soon. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.